Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, saying, Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have made it through another day and that we can be here this evening in order to study your word, in order to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened spiritually by the study of your word, recognizing that history has a destiny, and that destiny includes the uh, resolution of the sin and evil problem uh, in time and the judgment of evil and the judgment of the cosmic system as it uh, manifests itself in the tribulation period. Father, as we study these end-time events, let us be mindful of the fact that the spiritual principles that are present there are still present today, even though they are not being manifest in the way they will in the uh, final resolution judgment at the end times. Pray that we might be encouraged that you're in control of the circumstances of life, that no matter how uncertain, no matter how chaotic, no matter how crazy things may appear, no matter how much things might look as if uh, we are on the verge of seeing some, uh, uh, seeing the tribulation type events fulfilled in our own time. We know that the Lord could come back today, tomorrow, or 50 years from now, and we always have to be ready, and we should not focus our attention on these events as if they are meaningful for our spiritual life. Uh, we are to trust you and focus on you and be about our business in terms of representing the Lord Jesus Christ, and growing to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, somebody commented, a couple, actually several people commented in the last couple of weeks that we seem to be uh, moving ahead rather quickly, and that is only for appearance sake. It's not real. See, what happens is we have laid the groundworks for so many of these things by the detailed studies that we've had in the past that when we get to a few chapters, we can, you know, sort of jump forward because we have taken the time to lay all of the groundwork, and it's not as difficult. When we get into chapter uh, 17 and 18 next time, uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll slow down again, but even a lot of that we've covered uh, as we did in Re- when we looked at Revelation 13 and the kingdoms of the kingdom of man and the manifestation of the uh, final kingdom of the Antichrist, the uh, bear, the leopard, the lion, and the uh, final manifestation of that that kingdom is the Antichrist. So a lot of and, and in Babylon, and so a lot of that we have laid the groundwork for uh, several times. So we will. Uh, get there uh, fairly quickly. Now, in chapter 14, just to review a minute, we saw that there's a uh, John sees the Lamb. It's a transitional chapter. He sees the end of the tribulation period with this, uh, with a vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion, surrounded by the 144,000, which I take to be in resurrection body. Uh, I recognize there are, there are a number of scholars who disagree on this. There's, there's not real certainty here. There's a, a lot of uh, a lot of things that would indicate that that perhaps they have survived the tribulation. I don't think they do because they are with him. There's arguments within the text that indicates that that, that their unity there and they're singing a new song before the throne of heaven indicates that they also have a manifestation in heaven. And so we have the appearance of the 144,000, and then there's the proclamation, three angels, one who flies through the heavens preaching the gospel, literally proclaiming the gospel. And I think that that is a confirmation for the confirmation and unbelief of the earth dwellers. 
I do not believe from what we see in the subsequent chapters, I don't think there's a response uh, it, by, and the, by the time we get to the last part of the tribulation period, I don't think there's going to be much of a res- response to the gospel. There's the second angel that announces the fall of Babylon, the third angel that warns of anyone who receives uh, the mark of the beast. Uh, and so several times, including our passage tonight, there's a focus on that mark of the beast. So we, I haven't spent much time on that in the past, so we'll spend a little more time on that. And then there's the introduction of the judgments and the, and the graphic pictures of the judgments in terms of a harvest and a, and a um, grape harvest and the uh, mashing, smashing the violence done to the grapes to produce the juice that looks like blood, all of which is to depict the horrors and the violence at the end of the tribulation period. Chapter 15 was simply a prelude, an introduction to the last series of judgments, uh, the bold judgments, which began in earnest in chapter 16. Now, what we've seen in the past, just to fix the chronology in your mind, is that the tribulation period does not begin until after the rapture of the church. This takes place within the book of Revelation, probably about Revelation 4, 1. And chapter 4 and 5 give us that heavenly picture of the uh, throne, the God the Father on the throne holding forth the scroll, which is uh, the title deed to the planet, and the search for one who is worthy to open the scroll. Opening the scroll means bringing judgment upon the earth, and so it is only there's only one who's qualified, and that is the Lamb who comes forward. With the opening of the first seal, the tribulation begins, which is comparable to the time when the uh, prince who is to come, according to Daniel 9, the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. The tribulation period is divided into, is a seven year period divided into two, three and a half year segments. I believe that chronologically the first two series of septed judgments, there's a good word for everybody. See, that got everybody's attention. Even Dan woke up back there on the back row and looked at me. That means a septet is a group of seven. I'm doing. A, I'm writing. or supposed to write a paper. Haven't written a word yet for pre-trib this year called the Seven Septet Judgments and the and their relationship to the abomination of desolation. I've had three people ask me, "What is that?" See, it's academic, so it makes me sound educated. So we have the first two septad judgments, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and then that's followed by the abomination of desolation. That marks this midpoint of the tribulation, which we identified with the period after the death of the two witnesses who were then taken to heaven uh, in Revelation chapter 11. The last half of the tribulation will see the seven bold judgments, Though the way I've depicted it here, I don't think they span the entire period. I think some of these other judgments that are depicted in Revelation 14 come between the uh, abomination of desolation and the last series of judgments. Uh, the, they, the judgments depicted there uh, indicate ongoing judgments. So in the first part of the tribulation, we had the seven seal judgments, actually the seventh Seal judgment, when it is open, reveals the second series of seven judgments, the trumpet judgments. Now, if you remember, the first four were represented by the four horsemen, often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, representing a period of uh, sort of nonviolent aggression, which then led to the second seal, which is open warfare on the earth, which led to a third crisis of famine and economic catastrophe, which then leads naturally to a uh, fourth, the fourth seal, which is death. Those seem to flow in a natural order. But when you come to the fifth and sixth seal judgment, it becomes uh, uh, obvious that something else is going on. The fifth seal judgment is the martyrdom of, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of believers during the tribulation period. And then the sixth seal judgment is a uh, like an asteroid shower, meteor shower, hitting the earth, killing, again, um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. 
This intensifies in the next series of judgments, the trumpet judgments, and there are certain parallels between these trumpet judgments and the final bowl judgments, leading some to believe that, that to believe that they they overlap. That the bowl judgments are just another way of talking about the trumpet judgments, but they're they're different. For example, when the uh, the sea is uh, judged and and the second trumpet judgment. It's a, a, a third of the sea, and then um, uh, and when the waters, when the fresh waters are turned bitter, that's a third of those waters. Uh, the sun, moon, and stars are dimmed by one third. There's parallels with the bold judgments, but in the bold judgments, everything in the sea is destroyed. All life is destroyed. In the fresh water, everything is destroyed. The sun uh, is darkened. Um, this is much more dramatic and much more extreme than what is experienced in the in the trumpet ju- judgments. The seventh bowl judgment is, I mean, the seventh trumpet judgment uh, actually reveals another series of seven judgments, the seven bowl judgments, but the seventh trumpet doesn't really blow until you get into the second half of the tribulation. As we read through Revelation, I think it's really important to recognize that the events in Revelation are depicted like scene shifts in a film so that you can have one scene in heaven and another scene on the earth, another scene back to heaven, and if you're not careful at identifying what you're looking at, everything can get pretty muddled. Uh, the four, chapters 4 and 5 take place in heaven. The 6th chapter is on the earth. 7th chapter goes back to heaven. Chapter 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments, the scene is once again on the earth. In the 10th chapter, the focus is on the mighty angel who has the little book, gives it to John to eat, and it's first sweet in his mouth and turns bitter. This is heavenly, a heavenly scene. And 11, 1 through 14, there is again an earthly scene with the prophets, the two witnesses on the earth, and then there's a shift after their uh, ascension to a scene of praise before the throne of God in 11:15 through 19. Then chapters 12 and 13 focus again upon uh, the earth, the woman who flees into the wilderness, the two beasts, and then chapters 14 through 15 again back with a heavenly orientation to those judgments, seeing, concluding with these uh, seven angels coming out of the temple in heaven with the bowls to pour, of judgment to pour out upon the earth. And then chapter uh, 16 focuses upon the earth and the uh, what happens as those bowl judgments are poured out upon the earth. So we just an overview now of the bowl judgments. They come in the second half of the tribulation period. The first is these terrible boils. Some think they're skin, horrible skin cancers that occur upon the earth. Then the seas turn to blood. The freshwater rivers then turn to blood. Then the sun uh, somehow gets cranked up and we have real global warming and the earth is scorched and people uh, cannot escape from the burning, searing heat of the sun. And this is followed by uh, darkness that comes on the throne of the beast and then the river Euphrates is dried up, allowing the kings of the east to come in from the east, and as they come to gather at uh, Armageddon. The seventh bold judgment involves earthquake and uh, hail. This takes place within the air, and then this is quickly followed by the second coming. So that gives you a flyover uh, orientation to Revelation. So in 15 minutes, we've covered most of the book. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Okay, we've gone through it. That's that's the quick overview. Now we'll get into some of the details. In chapter 15, we John sees the, in his vision in heaven. Uh, John sees these angels coming out of the temple. He says, out of the temple, and the Greek word there for temple, I have the same word in 16.1, is the word naos. And naos usually refers to the uh, inner sanctum, not the entire temple complex, 
but the inner sanctum, what we would call refer to as the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. This is where the throne of God is. This is where the Father's presence is as he is uh, directing from his sovereignty the flow of judgment upon the earth. And his justice is now being poured out in all of its strength and all of its power upon the human race that is in complete and total uh, rebellion against him. And so the last stage of the last series of judgments are depicted as seven plagues. Often in Scripture, judgments from God are depicted as plagues, and they're clothed in pure linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. I pointed out last time this is the same way the Lord Jesus Christ was dressed when he appeared to John back in chapter 1 on the Isle of Patmos. It is the uh, robes that indicate that of a priest, and the golden sash indicates the, uh, the, the symbol of judgment or a judge. And so they are prepared to pour forth this judgment upon the earth. And so at the conclusion of uh, chapter 15, we saw that as these uh, angels come out of the temple, that the uh, four living creatures then give to them the bowls filled with the wrath of God, and the temple is filled with smoke, hiding God from everyone. He is alone inside the temple. Uh, Doug mentioned afterwards it's reminiscent of what happened uh, at the cross as the cross is shrouded in darkness. Also, uh, Sinai, when God appeared to Moses on Sinai and there's smoke and there's thundering and there's cl- thick clouds upon uh, upon the mountain, it indicates God and it, it separates God from all of his creatures as he is focusing on bringing judgment Upon the earth, and then sixteen one begins with him, with John saying, "Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. Now the loud voice here can only be from God the Father. It is coming from the temple. Only God the Father is in the temple. So this is God the Father in his sovereignty as the ultimate judge of the universe, the one directing the the outpouring of these judgments upon the earth. The temple, as I said earlier, is that inner sanctum that represents the dwelling place of God in heaven. That is the ultimate meaning of a tabernacle or temple. The two words are used interchangeably for the heavenly tabernacle or temple. The writer of Hebrews uses tabernacle. The writer uh, here says the temple. And so he directs these seven angels. And he make, gives two commands, two commands in a present imperative plurals to address to the entire group. The first command is to depart, to leave, to go, to go on your way. Greek word is hupago, indicating to uh, depart on their mission. And then the second word, which is also a key word, is enkeo, which is used several times in different contexts in this chapter, and it means to pour something out. And so it's going to be used in each uh, each image when the angel comes to pour out the bowl of judgment. So this word is repeated uh, several times, not just the seven times, but a couple of other times for effect uh, within the chapter. So they pour out the bowls that are described uh, as the wrath of God. They contain the wrath of God, and the term wrath, as we've studied, thumos indicates more the uh, intensified application uh, of the sentence, the judicial sentence from the throne of God, whereas orge uh, perceives the justice of God in terms of the declaration of the sentence, the uh, declaration of his judgment upon the earth. The term wrath of God with Thumas looks at it or depicts it in terms of its intensity and its application. So the term wrath of God is a figure of speech indicating the severity and the harshness of divine judgment. And so as these angels leave and go out one at a time to pour out their judgments, 
The first is covered in verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl uh, upon the earth. Literally, it's a phrase in the Greek that is into the earth. It indicates its direction. And and it became a sore. And this sore is described by a couple of terms that are, uh, one usually means bad, the other usually means evil, but together it indicates some sort of a horrible, painful, uh, disgusting, revolting sore that is just, uh, they can't be healed and these horrible uh, boil-like cancers uh, just come out on the uh, skins of those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped him. Now, this is about the third time we've run into this. It was the role of the false prophet, if you remember, in chapter 13, to instigate the mark of the beast upon all of those who dwell upon the earth, the unbelievers, those who are set in their resistance to God, and it, it restricts them from participating in various, um, in any kind of economic activity, any kind of social activity. But there's a lot of questions to exactly what the mark of the beast is, so I thought that I would take a little time this evening to address some of the questions raised about the mark of the beast. So there are various questions that people ask, such as what exactly is the mark of the beast, and there are all kinds of unusual speculations there. Second, how will this mark come into use? The third question is how long will the mark be used? Uh, Fourth, who will receive this mark? And why? Uh, fifth, how is today's society being conditioned, and we are, to receive the mark of the beast? So when this comes into effect, it's, it will seem like a natural, normal progression of events. And then finally, what happens to those who take the mark of the beast? And can you take it by accident, just by inadvertently filling out a credit card application, as it were? Now, we have to be careful not to be caught up in some of the silliness that goes on with the mark of the beast. We have uh, people identify anything that has a number 666 on it as uh, somehow this is an evil number in and of itself, and that's not what the Bible is saying. The first time we run into this is in the passage we looked at a few weeks ago, Revelation 13, 16 through 18, Talking about the second beast, the false prophet, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that word that is used, the, the word there describes a mark, it indicates a visible, something visible that's seen. It's not going to be under the skin. It's, it's on. Uh, the preposition there indicates something that is on top of the skin, something visible. It's not some uh, implanted uh, microchip or something like that. That could be part of it, but the idea is that this is something visible that's put either on the right hand or on their uh, forehead. Verse 17, that no man might buy or sell, uh, save he, he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for this is the number of a, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six in the old King James, six hundred and sixty six. So what we learn about this as we go through the scriptures, first of all, the mark is identified with the person of the Antichrist. It is directly connected to who he is. And the number six 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 says something about his his character, and his person. It will be a mark, something like a brand or a tattoo. And I think that one of the ways in which we're prepared for this is just the popularity we've seen the last uh, 10 or 12 years of tattoos. And it is rare now to to find uh, young people who do not have some sort of tattoo uh, on their body which prepares uh, people to have this kind of thing uh, done to them. It's really interesting. You see people who are, you know, 40 and over, and uh, you see a young man who's, or 
a man who's over 40 and looking for uh, perhaps someone to marry. You know, they, they just grew up in a culture where tattoos aren't that acceptable, so they feel like they're pretty much limited in choices because so many of the young women under 40 have tattoos. So it really indicates a great cultural shift uh, between generations. The mark itself will be visible to the naked eye. It's going to be, as I'll point out, a sign of allegiance to the Antichrist, something that people will be proud to have, uh, proud to be visible. It will be on the hand or on the forehead, not in. So it indicates that it's clearly seen and visible to those around. It's going to be recognized and not questioned. It's going to be uh, one of the greatest status symbols of that time to have this, the mark of the beast. And if you don't have it, then it will be uh, uh, quite obvious. It will be voluntary. People are going to know what it is, why it is, and what it means. It's not going to be something that's just uh, accidental or involuntary. It doesn't come along until after the rapture, and in fact, after the second half of the tribulation. So don't worry about it. It's not going to happen now, so don't think that you know what it's going to be uh, now any more than you think you know who the Antichrist is uh, now. It's only going to be used in the second half of the tribulation period once the first beast and second beast have consolidated their power over the uh, kingdom of the Antichrist. It will be necessary in order to buy and sell anything. I'm sure there will be some sort of underground black market, but it will be extremely difficult. This is a way for the government at that time to control all of, all economy. And see, we're moving more and more in in the world to government-controlled economics. And so this will be pretty acceptable. It will be universally received by all non-Christians, but universally rejected by all Christians. And that may seem unusual to us, but in light of the announcement of the angel, the warning uh, about the mark of the beast, information that's in the scriptures that will be available to believers during that time, it is not something that is going to be uh, overlooked. There will be knowledge of its significance and what it means, and Christians just will not take the mark of the beast. It will be a mark of worship and allegiance to the Antichrist. Uh, some have suggested it's going to be some sort of religious initiation rite, that there will be an oath, very likely an oath of allegiance to the person of the Antichrist. And you see this kind of thing in various totalitarian governments where, uh, for example, in the Third Reich under Hitler, you had the Hitler Youth would sing uh, songs of praise directed to the person of uh, Adolf Hitler or in uh, the Soviet Union to the person of uh, Stalin or Lenin or someone later on because it was that leader that embodied the state. You had the same kind of thing in the ancient Roman Empire where it was the person, Caesar, who embodied the state and so loyalty to the person was the same as loyalty to the state whereas we live in a nation where it is ruled by a constitution and our loyalty is to the law of the land and the constitution and is not directed toward a person. The individual that promotes the use of the mark of the beast is the false prophet. This is, comes within his area of responsibility, and it is a definite sign that a person will face eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Scriptures make it clear, those who bear the mark of the beast are going to end up in the lake of the fire. Uh, so why is it called 666? What is the significance of that particular number? Uh, Revelation 13:18 says it's wisdom to calculate the number and that his number is 666. 777 represents God. 7 is the number of perfection. The three sevens represents the Trinity. So the number 777 is the number of God, whereas the number 666 represents man. The 6 represents the sixth day of creation. When uh, the human race was created, God created 
uh, man the image in his image and likeness, male and female, he created them. And so the three sixes, though, indicate a trinity. And so you have the uh, sort of a triune six here, which indicates the deification of man, which is exactly what will happen with the Antichrist. He will be worshipped as God. And so it will be the uh, false prophet who will uh, promote the mark of the beast. So in conclusion, we see that the mark of the beast will be a unique mark, a visible mark, external mark, given to all who have pledged allegiance to the Antichrist. And this will take place during the latter part of the uh, seven years, the period of the Great Tribulation, the last half of the Tribulation. And men and women will not be able to buy or sell or basically engage in any kind of economic or social activity unless they have this unique mark. So that answers the first question, what is the mark of the beast? The next question is, how will this mark come into use? What are the mechanics? How will people... Uh, fall into this. And all we're told in the scripture is it's the result of, of deception, the deception that comes in the end time period. Revelation 19.20 says that the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them, uh, that had rece- deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. That's at the end of the tribulation period, but in terms of prophecy, we also have uh, passages like 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, uh, 9 through 12, which talk about the miracles, the signs and wonders that the Antichrist is going to perform, and all of this is designed to uh, provide an unrighteous deception, in verse 10, among those who perish. That is, there is this evil deception that takes place among all the unbelievers during the tribulation period because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there's this clear demarcation between the saved and the unsaved. I used to, uh, when I went up to Connecticut, it was interesting because uh, coming out of the Bible Belt, and whether you live in uh, any of the cities that are vying for the title buckle of the Bible Belt, whether it's Dallas or Nashville or Atlanta or Houston, there's so many churches in the South. And there are so many people, at least up until the last 15 or 20 years, there was such a social pressure to go to church on Sunday. People just grew up going to church on Sunday, whether they cared about the Bible or God or not. You just went to church on Sunday. That was part of the culture. So there were a lot of people who uh, really cared less about being Christians, but they went through all of the uh, various activities and were usually associated with some kind of a kind of a church. But if you go to places like the uh, Northwest uh, in Washington State, Oregon, the Left Coast over in uh, California, or you go to New England, which are the lowest churched attendance areas in the U.S., you realize that the only people who are in church are people who want to learn something from the Bible. And there's something refreshing about that. You don't have a church of uh, 500 people where only five want to learn the Bible. Uh, the only reason anybody will go to church is because they really are interested. There's no social pressure, no family pressure, anything to be involved in, in a local church. And so in the end times, in the tribulation period, it's going to be very clear who's a believer and who is not a believer because of the hostility to Christianity that is that is present during that that time. And God will send a strong delusion, verse 11 says, upon the unbelievers. Now, that's not what starts it. What starts it is the fact that they, they willingly succumb to the deception of the Antichrist because of their own arrogance and their own self-deception as a result of their own volition. But they've already made the choice to reject God, to reject his grace, and to reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
All God is going to do is come along and intensify that negative volition, which he did with Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus, where it was called the hardening of his heart, in order to demonstrate his justice through their negative volition. So God will delude those who are already self-deluded. He will deceive those who are already self, allow them to be deceived, those who are already self-deceived, that they should believe uh, the lie. Now, so how does this come into use in terms of its, what kind of rationale is the Antichrist going to use in order to convince people that they need to have this, this mark? Well, there are a lot of scenarios that we could come up with. Governments uh, like to manufacture crises that they can then blow out of proportion in order to use those crises to change the structure of governments and the structure uh, of societies. This was typical in the uh, Soviet Union era after the Bolshevik Revolution. It was typical in Nazi Germany. It happened when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over in Iran. It's happened when Saddam Hussein took over. Anytime you have social crises where things are in a turmoil, that can be used by people in power to justify the abrogation of normal Laws. Abraham Lincoln did it, did it during the War of Northern Aggression when he suspended the law of habeas corpus. Uh, things like that put the federal government at odds with its with the governing power, which is the Constitution. So those kinds of scenarios will come into play with all these judgments that are happening, all of the crises that are happening on the earth. You can see how easy it will be for the government to justify. All, all manner of things during that, that uh, time period. Dave Hunt has an interesting comment to make in his book, Peace, Prosperity, and the Coming Holocaust, which he wrote back in the uh, mid-80s or early 80s. And he wrote, quote, The use of 666 by the Antichrist would be a defiant declaration that Bible myths are rejected. That And anyone afraid to take this mark would be considered guilty of harboring superstitious beliefs that would no longer be tolerated in the new order. Taking this number would be a bold declaration of one's own inherent godhood and emancipation from narrow Christian dogmas of the past and a commitment to a universal new religion under the New Age uh, Messiah." So that's the idea. It's going to be the popular thing to do. It will be, you'll be considered some sort of, uh, uh, backwoods, uneducated, unsophisticated, uh, idiot if you don't take the mark. So there'll be tremendous social pressure to be, uh, and there's some sort of fashion statement also to have the, uh, latest color, the latest skin. You know, that's what you can get on cell phones and iPods is different coverings. So they'll probably have all kinds of different ways they can dress up the mark of the beast. It will only be used during the last half of the tribulation period, not during the whole period, only in the second half, the last three and a half period after the midpoint. And this is is directly related to his consolidation of power as he has to marshal all of the energy, power, technology that's available on the planet because Satan knows Jesus is going to come back and he's got to pull it all together to try to stop Jesus from coming back and rescuing the Jews. Now the next question is who's going to receive the mark and why? We've indicated, I've indicated this already. Revelation 13, 16, and 17 shows that it's necessary in order to engage in any kind of economic activity. And so it is directly related to buying things, going to the grocery store, paying your bills, paying your uh, utility bills, getting gas in your car, buying a car. All these things are going to uh, be necessary. You're going to have to put that number down just like you have to put down your Social Security number now. I'm not saying the Social Security number is the mark of the beast, but that's just one of the ways in which you know, we get uh, accustomed to having to uh, put numbers down and uh, scan things. You go, to, uh, you go to Costco. You've got to scan your Costco card to uh, 
uh, buy something. You go to uh, other places. You have to scan your driver's license before you can uh, do something. If you're going to travel out of the country, you have to scan your passport. All of these kinds of things just condition society for the future reception of the mark. Now, there's a lot of interesting things that go on, and in the secular world, they see these things go on, and so there have been all manner of pictures that have been put up on various magazine covers indicating that uh, we're somehow marching toward this uh, society where everything is numbered, and we, you know, we're not supposed to use Social Security number as an identification number. It was never intended that way, but that's what they do uh, in violation of law. And if you try to get around that, people look at you like you're crazy. What do you mean you can't use it as an identification number? Uh, with all the fraud and everything that goes on, people are beginning to relax that a little bit. But I used to get in all kinds of trouble because I would never want to give anybody my Social Security number. You didn't have to, but nobody wants to abide by the law anymore. So you have all these different kinds of things coming along, especially with the uh, UPC code uh, that is on any kind of product. Anything you buy has, got, has a UPC code that gets scanned in, telling, uh, recording all sorts of information. And so we are constantly being conditioned to receive the mark of the beast and to become uh, numbered. And there's all sorts of uh, commercial advertisements and Articles and magazines that talk about these things. For example, in uh, Science and Society, there's an article on they know where you are, how we're tracked many ways today that different uh, advertising agencies and uh, consumer organizations can track everything uh, that we are doing. Your telephone can be turned into a camera and somebody at the other end can start watching what's going on through your uh, cell phone if you have the right kind of cell phone. Every cell phone has a computer GPS chip in it so they can track uh, track you where you're going. On uh, this U.S. News & World Report article, it came out in 2003, the writer said, I think there's uh, something huge here. It's going to have a major impact on retailing over the next 20 years. Critics worry that chips on clothing, toys, or electronics will expose consumers to later invasions of, uh, of privacy. Some envision powerful radio gear reading the tags from a distance to see what's inside a house. Uh, one solution might be to disable them at the uh, checkout counter. Another article notes that new location technologies raise privacy concerns that are mostly hypothetical, that is, at this stage, but the, the technology's there. Uh, cell phone tracking systems could generate data that law enforcement agencies uh, might cover, and minuscule data storage chips like the ones at the right shown on the D of a dime are built into radio tags that could be used to track products and conceivably their users. Notice the little D on a dime there and those little uh, chips that are in the hole. That's how small these things are. Then you have uh, the introduction of uh, uh, ARFID tags. Uh, these are radio identification uh, tags, and this shows how small they are next to a small ant. And so these could easily embedded, be embedded in your clothes, in your books, in your cars, just to track and collect information. And right now that's what happens. It, it can collect information for consumer purposes, but it's not long before that could easily be, uh, that information could be gathered for, for use by a government agency. Uh, in the record on Sunday, July 13th, uh, there was an article related to these uh, ARFID tags that they're tiny chips, and in the article states, this ant seems like a giant walking among computer chips, razor blades and heart medicine packaged with a computer chip smaller than the head of an ant, and a thin antenna will start appearing in a few pharmacies and grocery stores uh, this year. Within two decades, retailers and manufacturers say the tiny transmitters will beam back their location and a wealth of other information, replacing the computer-scanned barcodes now found on most uh, products. Mark uh, Rotenberg, director of a watchdog organization called the Electronic Privacy Information Center, 
said retailers should be required to disable the tags before a consumer leaves a store. Quote, simply stated, I don't think most people want their clothes spying on them. It's also clear that there could be some very invasive uses of these techniques if merchants use the tracking technology to spy on their customers after purchases. In Psychology Today, uh, one writer wrote, the technology to do such record-keeping electronically has existed since the invention of the universal product code and the supermarket scanner. In effect, they've created the opportunity for keeping an electronic diary of individual consumer behavior. Even before the shopper gets her change, a record of the entire transaction, the product, the brand, the size, the price of every item in the shopping cart has been fed into the computer. And the Sunday Oregonian commented on this that, Uh, a government proposal would give every American a number called a unique health identifier that, like your Social Security number, would follow you from cradle to grave. If we get health care reform, what a misnomer, uh, this is just one step further in getting your little universal health code identifier. And then it's used in with pets a lot today. Uh, L.A. Times reported that Pet scanning was here today, and can people scanning be far behind? And if you uh, have pets, then they are inserting chips in them, so if they get lost, wander away, you can find them again. Different things are on uh, hand for the future. May May 13, 1997, United States patent number... 5,629,678 was granted for a personal tracking and recovery system consisting of a miniature digital transceiver implantable in humans with a built-in electromechanical power supply system. These features enable the device to remain implanted and functional for years without maintenance. This transceiver sends and receives data and can be continuously tracked by GPS technology. One of these companies is... Uh, digital angel, which allows you to track, where am I? I keep losing it. Okay, one more time. There we go. Uh, digital angel tracking and recovery system so that you can track your children, track your parents, track everybody around. This is the kind of thing that will be present in the Mark of the Beast. Now, those who receive the mark of the beast, according to Revelation 14, 9, and 10, are going to be the objects of the wrath of God. 14, 10, they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And then when we get into our chapter in chapter 16, we see that the first bowl judgment involves this foul, loathsome sore that comes upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. Now, the Greek words used there are kakos and phallus. Kakos means something that's bad or harmful or ruinous, and phallos indicates something bad or evil or vile. So this is going to be some sort of ruinous and vile sores. Maybe they're huge malignant boils. Uh, we don't know, but it's something that is going to be incredibly painful to those who have them. Remember, these are the same people, many of them, who had were stung by those uh, weird locust scorpions back in the uh, trumpet judgments. Then in Revelation 16:3 we have the second bowl judgment. The second angel pours out his bowl upon on the sea, and it's the same phrase, ace thalasse, uh, indicating into the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. So it's not going to turn into blood, but it is likened to that. It has no productivity, no life in it. It becomes like the blood of a dead man with no life, no uh, no living organisms, no living things. Everything in the sea, in the oceans, it will die. This is this is worse than the worst nightmare of any 
uh, environmentalist, but this is brought about by the judgment of God. It's not brought about by using um, c- uh, internal combustion engines or hairspray or any of the other things that uh, the environmentalists think are going to destroy the environment. What destroys the environment is negative volition to God, and that is always what's destroyed the environment. So the second bold judgment is somewhat reminiscent of the plague upon the Nile River when the water turned to blood uh, during the time of the Exodus, same kind of plague. The third bold judgment affects the freshwater. Second bold judgment turned the salt seas to blood. The third bold judgment turns the rivers and springs of water to blood. This is one of the reasons many people think that these final bold judgments are going to come uh, very rapidly towards the end of the tribulation period because with the destruction of potable water, uh, people cannot survive for very long, and it is going to cause massive uh, panic, and people will turn against other people, and there will be uh, just incredible chaos and violence as everything uh, uh, just deteriorates at this point because you can't get basic source, uh, basic uh, nourishment of life, which is water. Then in verse 5, there's a pause, a pause to focus on the fact that this is what flows from the righteousness of God. It is not unrighteous. It's wrong to think this is horrible. How can God do this? This is what is deserved because of people who have rebelled against God and rejected him. In 16.5 we read, I heard the angel of the waters, that is the the last angel, the third angel, carrying the third bold judgment, say to the Lord, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was. King James Version from the TR inserts a who is to be, but that is not in either the majority of manuscripts or the critical text. should read just simply the one who is and who was because you have judged these things. And so the core of this sentence, because the way I did the indention there, you are righteous, O Lord, because you have judged these things. The focal point here in verse 5 is on the uh, judgment of God and the outpouring of his righteousness uh, in dealing with evil and those who have uh, rejected him. And because of what they do, because of their negative volition, that's verse 6, 4, and literally it's because, it's giving another reason for this, because they, that is the earth dwellers, have shed blood. That's the same word that's used for pouring out the vials of judgment. So there's a, there's a play on words there to capture our attention. God is pouring out judgment on those who poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, those who persecuted and destroyed, uh, those who represented God and his messengers. So the angel says that they deserve this because they have poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. In other words, you have put them into the same violence and the same horrors that they were uh, bringing upon believers. For it is their just due is the final statement. Literally in the Greek, it means they are deserving. They are getting exactly what they deserve. So verse 7 said, I heard another from the altar saying this would be another uh, vo- another angel from the altar. Uh, the, remember the voices, the prayers of those under the altar. This is another voice there saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And last time I pointed out the significance of these words for truth and righteousness and how they, they fit together again and again through Scripture as a reference to God's uh, judgment. We saw it last week in our study of Revelation 15.3. We talked about the uh, they sing the song of Moses, uh, the servant of God, the, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. This is uh, the angels uh, singing this in praise to God in anticipation of the uh, judgments being poured out in the bold judgments, going back to the essence of God, focusing on those four attributes, his righteousness, 
love, righteousness, justice, and truth, and how these fit together in many different ways, whether it's just two of them together, like our passage with righteousness and truth, or whether it involves three or four of these. These four go together frequently in Scripture, such as in Psalm 89.14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So righteousness is the foundation element, truth going forth. So that is summarized here by the focus on righteousness and truth in Psalm 89, uh, 14. Then uh, we come to uh, the fourth angel, Revelation 16, 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. See, the sun was darkened by a third earlier. Now uh, the sun is, heat is going to intensify. Uh, power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Uh, the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And what's the result? They blaspheme God, and they don't repent. They no, no matter whether God is dealing with them in love by sending his angel, an angel through the heavens to announce the gospel, or whether he deals with them harshly through horrible judgments, the reaction is they just become more and more stiff-necked, hostile to God, blaspheme his name, and they don't repent or give him glory. Now, remember earlier there's a phrase that something happened and all the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. That is the direct opposite of this statement. That happened in Revelation 11. After the two witnesses ascended to heaven, there was a great earthquake in Jerusalem. 7,000 were killed, and the rest gave glory to God. Now, here we see that they don't repent and give glory to God. So the phrase, to give glory to God, indicates believer versus unbeliever, the response there. So they refuse to become believers. They refuse to change their mind and they continue to be hostile to God. Then the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. This represents the power base of the Antichrist, the, his throne. That would indicate that this is a judgment that is poured out upon his, his leaders, his kingdoms, and the kingdom becomes full of darkness. And so uh, this... Uh, covers the land. I don't know whether, I'm not sure whether this is a metaphorical darkness in terms of their darkened in their understanding or whether this is a literal darkness upon the earth. It could be a result. Remember the fourth bold judgment goes on the sun. So there's a, another reduction in light, but things become dark, uh, at least minimally in terms of their knowledge, probably includes a physical darkness as well, and they gnaw their tongues because of the pain. They are in absolute misery. They've got these boils, these abscesses, these these uh, malignant skin cancers, and then all these other things are happening. They can't find anything to drink, and so their tongues are swelling up, and they're gnawing their tongues because of pain. But what do they do? Do they turn to God? No. Verse 11, they blaspheme the God of heaven because of the, their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Never again will we see this statement. There is no longer a, any, any turning to God uh, the rest of the book of Revelation, it, it, the rest of the tribulation. It's just judgment on all of the unbelievers. Then we come to the sixth Angel, and he pours out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Now, some people laugh, say this isn't much of a miracle with all the water taken out of the Euphrates today. It's dry about half the time anyway. But um, it will be dried up. All the water taken up indicates further drought, and so that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, who are the kings of the east? Many people have identified this with the Chinese. But east of the east of the Euphrates, you have Iran, you have Afghanistan, you have Pakistan, you have uh, who knows who. We're not sure who may, comprises this army, but there is an assault that uh, an assault force that heads from the east to gather at Armageddon to be part of the Antichrist's uh, final army. 
In verse 13, John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so this is the campaign. Literally, we'll see in the next couple of verses that it gets into the gathering at Harmageddon and for the battle. And it's not a battle. It is more of a military campaign or a war. The Greek word there, polemos, indicates a war. That's where we get our English word polemic. And it indicates more of a war or a series of battles. And this is the battle that's depicted from the Old Testament as the great day of the Lord, the great day of God Almighty. And so this this overview of these bold judgments in chapter 16 take us up to the very end of the tribulation period. But then as we come back next time, we'll see the details given at the end of chapter uh, chapter 16 related to the gathering at Armageddon, Armageddon, and then the chapters 17 and 18, which depict the uh, collapse of the kingdom of the Antichrist under the pressure from all of these uh, judgments. And then all of this leading to chapter 19 when the Lord returns. And I just think maybe the Lord will return before Christmas, at least in terms of our Bible study. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study these things tonight and go through these uh, passages and to uh, continue to be aware of how serious evil is and sin is, that it uh, calls uh, calls up the need for your justice to judge in such dramatic, horrible uh, fashion. Father, we pray that we might realize how real this is going to be and that that, too, might motivate us to communicate the gospel to those we know, those we love, those who are around us, because uh, someday, and it could involve our generation, the Lord will come back to rapture us to be with him, and then those who are left will be going through this horrible time of the tribulation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied, encourage us, because we know you're in control. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.